Well, today we're starting a new series, a two-week series, it's a short one, two-parter, called Crossroads. Uh, and all of us could tell stories about, you know, the moments that were significant in our life, that though we didn't realize it at the time, when we look back, you know, in the rearview mirror of life, we can kind of see that it actually formed kind of a path or a road that led us to where we are today. Um, all of us have stories, all of us have uh, tales, all of us have moments that we can look back on and we can tell other people about that form kind of the stepping stones in this path of life. Um, and, you know, there's different kinds of roads that we're on. Uh, for instance, I could, uh, I could tell you about the road of my relationships that led me to my wife. Uh, my relational road actually started uh, pretty early in my life. I don't know why. I'm, I don't know if I'm wired differently than some guys, but I was just kind of always uh, had this, I've always had this idea of relationships that I didn't want to date around, but I was always looking for love. Like, I always wanted to settle down. Like, I was, like, in junior high and, like, thinking about marriage. Like, I was always that weird guy. Now, I didn't, like, plan my wedding or anything like that. Um, whoa, I got a peer pressure, you know, it's really powerful. I should do a sermon on it, I guess, in a few years. Um, but, you know, we've all got this, like, like I could, so I, I look back and I started, um, you know, I look at my relational road and it took a while, it started early and um, I got my first real girlfriend the very tail end of my eighth grade year. And because I was always looking for love and thought, you know, that I believed in like, man, I'm going to find my soulmate in the one. And, and so when we got together, I thought, she's the one. It's eighth grade, it's 14 and I'm done, man. I found, I found love for life, okay? She was it. She was the girl that I'd loved. I actually had a crush on her since like second grade. And so all my dreams had come true when she finally agreed to go out with me. After years of pestering, I wore her down, you know? And it's like, which is my dating strategy, by the way. Just wear them down. They'll say yes eventually. I don't recommend that. It's a little rough road. But, um, you know, she said yes. And I was like, we're going to date this great. You know, she was um, the Topanga. I was Corey. That's how I looked at it. Some of you don't get that reference, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, I was so sure that she was the one. And we dated for a little over a year and a half. And then all of a sudden, I was more in love with her than she was with me. And I got my heart broke. And, man, that first heartbreak is rough. You know, you never felt that kind of pain before. You didn't know that that pain was out there. And oh, I, was so, I was so devastated. I remember sobbing the morning of my brother's wedding because it was this day you think about love and I'd already blown my shot at it. You know, I was 15 at that point. And I was like, it's over for me. I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. I'm 15 and I've already ruined my love career. I'll never be happy again. And I knew it, regardless of how much my mom and dad tried to come for me and say, you'll get over it. It's no big deal. Everybody gets their heart broke. No, you don't understand. It's terrible, I said. And obviously, you know, I move on. And over the course of high school, I, I dated a few more people, but nothing serious. And then after I graduated high school, I found the real one. For sure this time. I, I was so sure. And this girl and I were so perfect for each other. We, were, we, uh, we had very compatible uh, personalities. We laughed at all the same jokes. We enjoyed all the same things. We finished each other's sentences. Did someone say sandwiches? Okay. Um, you, can, you, can tell, you can tell who has little kids and has watched Frozen too many times. They say sandwiches when you say that. Um, but no, we, yeah, we really we finished each other's sentences, and man, we were so meant to be together. I was sure, and I believed, speaking of Disney stuff, I believed all kind of the Disney fairy tale version of love where there's just one person out there, and destiny brings you together, and once you find each other, everything works out. It's easy. It's not hard work. It's just love unending forever and ever and ever, and she was the one. I was sure of it, until she wasn't. 
We dated for just shy of three years. See, I'm a long-term guy. I always was. And, and so we dated for just shy of three years. And that breakup hurt, too. It, yeah, there was pain involved. But whereas the first breakup, it was all about the pain because I never felt that. Okay, that second breakup, it was as if I had to rethink everything I believed about love and relationships. Because at that point, I thought it was destiny. Love was something uncontrollable. You just fell into it. It fell into your lap, and you just kind of went along for the ride from then on out. Some sort of um, godly force, divine force, led you two together, and then there was just no work to be done after that. It was just you enjoy the ride. And then all of a sudden, that didn't work out. And I was like, if anybody was going to be my fit, it was this girl. I mean, we were so, I just felt compatible, you know? It felt like we went together. And so, um, luckily, when I went through this kind of existential relationship crisis, I was at Bible college. And at Bible college, when you have any sort of a confusing question, the answer is always, well, what does God say about it? And so luckily for me, that's where I was when I was looking through all this stuff. And so I started to wonder, well, what does God have to say about love and relationships? And I learned that God's view of love is not just something that happens to you, but it's a choice you make. It's not just something that you have no control over, but it is a conscious giving of yourself to another person, meaning you put them first in all things. They are somebody that you choose to put above yourself, your preferences, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, whatever it is. They come first. That love was this selfless, sacrificial thing that took work, that took effort, that took sacrifice, sometimes hard, painful sacrifice. And then after I'm, as I'm putting all these pieces together, I, I went to sit down next to my roommate in the college cafeteria, and his, uh, he was talking to this girl, and her, this girl's friend was sitting at the table, and we were both waiting, me and this other girl were waiting for our friends to get done talking so that we could go back to our rooms. But we got bored because they were talking so much, and so she and I struck up a conversation, and that's how I met my wife. And I look back on that, and I see that as a road. The heartbreak, because I think everybody needs to feel that at least once. It's, it's awful, but in some way it's good for you to learn that there is life after heartbreak. Secondly, it's, it, that second relationship, it was good for me to go through that, because it made me break down this nonsensical fairy tale view of love that honestly isn't real and it led me to rebuild it with God's truth about love and what, what takes a relationship and to make it really work and so I look at those two pieces and it, when both of those things happened it felt like a dead end it felt like the end of that road but now I look back and I see that no those were very important pivotal life-changing stops for me on the way to somewhere better somewhere amazing. By the way, that's you. You just came in here, but that's you. You're the better and amazing. I didn't want to, I said nice things and I didn't want to lose all the points for that, you know. That's the benefit of having the microphone and I can say things like that and get points for it. Um, okay, now that's what I mean by roads, okay. We all have those stories that, again, you look back and those moments that felt insignificant, that moment, those moments that felt like they didn't really have any purpose or meaning behind them, that you realize they did have some sort of purpose and, and meaning and some sort of guidance behind it all. But we're not going to talk about relationships this entire series, these two weeks. We're going to actually talk about the roads of faith, the roads that lead us to the cross of Christ and from the cross of Christ. And I don't mean from in a, way, in a bad way, like giving up your faith. Um, what I mean is that um, I think for those of us who have already given our lives to Christ, we realize that just like the calendar was split into B.C. and A.D., our lives kind of get split into that. 
You know, we see like where we met Christ became this life-changing, pivotal intersection for us, and, and it changed every road going forward. And so we're going to talk about the roads that go to the cross and the roads that go away from it. Um, I got this idea for this sermon series a month or so ago. I was riding on a train up to Chicago to go to uh, Alex's co- college graduation, and I was reading a book by J.D. Greer, and he just said it this way. He said, the Holy Spirit, you could say, is always leading to the cross or from it. And what he meant by that, excuse me, go back a little bit. What he meant by that was that if you, before you're a Christian, God is trying to lead you to the cross. And once you become a Christian, he wants to lead you out from the cross in order to have a mission and a purpose with your life so that you can take that message of hope and salvation to the rest of the world. That's what it is. And so this This series is going to be about the roads that lead to the cross and the roads that lead from it. Today we're going to talk about the the, the roads that lead to it. And um, one thing I love hearing as a pastor are are different Christians' testimonies. If your testimony is a weird word for you, um, it's simply the story of how someone came to faith in Christ. That's what we call a testimony. And everybody, when they tell their story, there's certain things about that story. It's all different. You never know what God's going to use in someone's life to be a, a changing moment, a, a moment that kind of guided them and steered them closer to faith in him. Um, but at the same time, every story is different, but every story is kind of also the same. And so um, I want to go to a couple stories, um, a couple conversion stories of people giving their life to Christ. Um, and I want to show you what's different, and I want to show you what's the same. And uh, I'll be honest, for the life of me, I could not find a way for us to read through both of these stories in their entirety and get done in any reasonable amount of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase the bulk of these stories. And if you want to follow along, just to make sure I'm not lying, you can grab a Bible. We'll be in the book of Acts, the New Testament book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a black hardback one near you. It'll be page 917 in those Okay? And we're going to look at these two conversion stories that are basically back-to-back. The first one is a conversion of a guy uh, who's an Ethiopian eunuch. The second story is a guy who's named Saul, who would eventually become, uh, being, have his name changed to Paul. Uh, God, um, when, he, when Christ grabbed a hold of people's lives, he liked to change their name, which is cool. Like, um, if, if you were the guy in high school that liked to give out nicknames, or the, if you got a nickname in high school... Like, God was the first nicknamer. Like, he always did that, did that kind of stuff. It's all throughout the scripture. So the first story is about this Ethiopian eunuch. And the first story is so simple. It's so plain. There's not a lot of fantastical, dramatic, supernatural elements to it. There, the only supernatural element to the story is that God spoke to a guy named Philip through the Holy Spirit and said, Hey, Philip, I want you to take this road that really goes nowhere, and I want you to walk. It was an actual physical road. said, I want you to walk on this road and just go. And the road went through a desert. It didn't seem to really have any reason to walk on this road. And so he just, okay, God told me to, so I'm going to do it. And so he walks this road. And as he's walking literally in the middle of nowhere, he comes across this guy, an Ethiopian guy, in a chariot. And he was kind of an important guy, so it wasn't a tiny one-man chariot. There was somebody else driving it, and he was just there. And it says in the story that he had just returned from worshiping God in Jerusalem. So the Ethiopian guy had some sort of a desire for God, had some sort of a hunger to know God, be closer to God, but there were some things in his way. Though he was receptive to God, he wanted more, but he could not get more. And and what I mean by that is, um, it says the guy was a eunuch. If you don't know what that is, I'm not going to tell you to Google it, because I don't know what you'll get if you Google that. Um, Maybe like dictionary.com would be a safe place to type in the word eunuch. Um, But he... uh, Eunuchs, according to the Old Testament, were not allowed to go into the temple. 
That mean he, means he traveled thousands of miles from northern Africa all the way to Jerusalem to worship God, and he got stopped at the door. He couldn't get in. He couldn't get that full entrance into God's, um, God's presence. And the second thing about him was, since he didn't li- grow up in, in Israel, he didn't know um, the context, he didn't ever hear, grow up hearing the stories of the Old Testament preached to him day in and day out like the, the modern or the ancient Jewish people would have, he didn't understand a lot of the ancient stories that built their faith. Um, and so we learn that he's um, riding in this chariot back to Ethiopia after coming to Jerusalem, and he's reading through a copy of the, of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and he's confused by it, which makes sense. If you don't know a lot about ancient Judaism and you try to read one of those Old Testament prophetic books, man, they're confusing, okay? Amen. If anybody's ever tried to crack one of those open and you thought the Bible's hard and confusing, it might have been one of those books that gave you that idea. And so we can relate to this guy. He's opening it and he says, I don't know how to make sense of this. I need somebody to explain it to me. Well, here comes Philip, a Jewish person who understands all the background, somebody who's given their life to Christ. He's walking on this road. He has no idea why. He sees this Ethiopian eunuch and he goes up and he sees this opportunity right in front of him fall into his lap and he says, I'm going to tell this guy about Jesus. And that's what he does. In Acts chapter 8, verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture. So he started with where that guy was reading in Isaiah. He started with what was right in front of him. And beginning with that scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So that's the first conversion. Pretty plain, nothing crazy, just two guys meeting, and one guy willingly leading another one to Christ. Second story, total opposite end of the spectrum. It is a crazy, fantastic, God-ripping-open-the-sky kind of a story. Supernatural, beyond a doubt. And it starts with a guy named Saul. Saul was a Jewish priest. Okay? So he wasn't a guy who was looking for more information about God. He was a guy who thought he had all the information about God. He was not open. He was not receptive to something new or hearing about Jesus. And more than that, he was a guy that hated Christians, hated Christianity. He thought Christianity was a perversion of his faith, and it was a lie that was leading people farther and farther away from the truth, which was Judaism. And so he was one of the people that got the job of going around from town to town and town and arresting Christians because he thought they were destroying their faith and so he wanted them out of circulation he wanted them locked up he hated these people and so as he's going to one of these towns to arrest some christians a a town called damascus jesus kind of literally splits the sky open and it says a bright light shines on saul and jesus speaks to him and says basically i'm that god that you think you believe but you've been missing something i am that savior i am that messiah i am not a perversion of the of the jewish faith i am the the next chapter of your faith saul and saul who was not receptive who was not ready to hear anything about jesus who was the last person in the world you expect to come to christ gets his heart rattled and shocked by this crazy moment when jesus kind of stops him in the middle of his tracks and so saul sees jesus and then he sees nothing He's blind, it says. After this encounter, after this bright light from heaven, he's blinded. And it says he goes into Damascus, and he uh, spends the next three days blind and fasting. Um, Fasting was something that Jewish people did um, when they were seeking God more deeply. It was something that they often did when they were crushed, rattled, 
looking for anything, whatever that next step was. It was kind of a symbol sometimes of mourning, and he was. He was, everything that he thought he knew, everything he thought he believed was just ripped apart. And so he is there reevaluating his life, waiting for what comes next. And at the same time, while he's waiting, the Holy Spirit speaks to another Christian guy named Ananias, and he says, hey, Ananias, I want you to go across town, and I want you to speak to this guy named Saul. And Ananias is like, yeah, I heard about him. And I heard that he takes people like me and he puts them in jail, so how about I don't go do that, God? And God says, too bad, I've got plans for him, and you're going to be the one to go help him take those next steps of faith. And so Ananias goes and enters the house, and this is what we learn, Acts chapter 9, verses 17 through 18. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. So you have these two men on completely opposite spiritual roads. Didn't look the same at all, but they both led to Jesus. And one of them was a very simple, plain, no-frills encounter. Okay, just a happen chance meeting with a willing Christian. The other one um, was a guy who was violently opposed to Jesus, and so Jesus kind of violently interrupted his world and, to, and, and did this fantastic thing to kind of help him see the truth. And these two, these two stories are kind of the extreme ends of the spectrum. They show us how different our stories of faith can be. Some of you your, your, your road to faith was like a long, slow curve. It's, it was years of nudgings, years of, of people inviting you to church. Maybe your mom nagging in your ear, Jesus still loves you. I don't care what you're doing. He still loves you, and so do your dad and I. And they, I mean, it was years of little moments where people, you felt like they were just harping at you or, or trying to convert you, and you're like, just back off. And then finally, you were, something happened in your life, or you were at the right place and the right time, and the right person said the right thing, or the right guy preached the right sermon, and it just clicked, and your heart was ready, and you gave your life to Christ. Some of you, your story's a lot shorter, and it's like you were doing your thing, and all of a sudden, something happened in your life. God reached out, grabbed your heart, and was like, you're going this way now. And you're like, oh, okay, and it felt like this huge, monumental, life-changing thing, and every one of your friends and family were like, you're a Christian? Sure, okay. You're not really the person we were expecting to become a Christian, but... This is interesting. Let's just see how this plays out, okay? Some of you have that night and day conversion story. And, and so everybody's story is a little bit different. But despite all the differences, I want to point out three things that are absolutely the same in both of these stories. Here's the first one. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. He is the one who died to take away my sin. He took the penalty for everything I had ever done wrong, everything you have ever done wrong. All salvation, all hope comes only in Christ. And so both of these roads had to lead to Jesus. That is one thing all conversions will always have in common. Number two, the Holy Spirit was leading and organizing all the details. Sometimes I think as Christians, when we think about sharing our faith, we have too many what ifs and what if they do this and what's going on and what if they say or what if they're not ready or what if they get angry. I think sometimes we just need to chill out and trust that the Holy Spirit is always working behind the scenes in ways that we can't even comprehend. For the, for the Ethiopian eunuch, something got in him to drive thousands of miles, I guess ride thousands of miles, um, to Jerusalem to worship. 
Nothing significant, amazing, and spiritual happened on that journey, and it happened on the way home. And God had led a random Christian out in the middle of nowhere to meet him. With Paul's story, the Holy Spirit um, sent Ananias to go speak to a guy who he thought was dangerous. I mean, the Holy Spirit was working and organizing and orchestrating all the details until these moments came, became perfect. And I, I think of that is true in my life. As my road of faith um, years back, I look back and I see moments where the Holy Spirit used some people, some circumstances to kind of give me a sharper turn in the right direction, but there was a lot of stuff that wasn't anything significant that just kind of ended up being like a little nudge along the way to kind of course correct me until I ultimately found Christ. So the Holy Spirit is always working in the details, and that's true in both of these stories. But the third thing, and something that you need to pay attention to, every single one of us here needs to pay attention to this. If you call yourself a Christian, call yourself a believer. Third element in every conversion story is a willing Christian. It's a willing follower of Christ who understands Jesus saved me. I didn't deserve it. It was an absolute free gift of grace, and he can do that for other people too. Why would I keep that to myself? Philip walked into the middle of nowhere, didn't even know why. Had no clue. Had no clue. Just walked. I don't know how long he walked. Could have been dozens, could have been hundreds of miles. We don't know. Um, Ananias gets told to walk literally kind of into the lion's den. Go to this guy who arrests everybody else who's ever talked to him and said they were a Christian. Go talk to this guy. But they were willing to obey God's leading and prompting on this great and amazing mission. You see, we oftentimes feel as if it's not our job to do that. That if God's going to lead people to Christ, he can do that. But yeah, that's true. I mean, if God can bring these two strangers together in in the desert, and have a conversion experience. If God, if Jesus can crack open the sky and change somebody's heart like Paul, yes, he doesn't need us in this stuff, okay? He can save us without human intervention. But yet, in every instance that I see of a conversion story in Scripture, he puts a willing Christian in the middle of it. He wants us to be a part of this mission. He wants us, he calls us, he commands us to be people who step out of our comfort zone and are willing to share Christ with this most amazing gift with the world. I mean, good grief, we'll talk for hours about our favorite restaurant. It's like, uh, that someone else might not even like. How many times has someone said, that's amazing, you gotta go eat there, and you went there and you're like, meh. You ever had somebody tell you a, re- a movie was amazing? And you get there and you're halfway through the movie only to realize, man, they built it up way too much. This is not that. This is okay. I mean, but it wasn't worth the $45 it took me to bring my family here. Okay? And yet here we are talking about the Savior of the world. Most of us are just like, Whoop. we have this amazing thing. And God has called us, invited us to share our faith with people so that they can move off of the road that leads to hell and onto the road that leads to heaven, life, and joy everlasting. He wants us to be a part of this. We have to care. Now, All that stuff to be said. All that to be said. The stories are different. Stories are the same in certain ways. Here's one thing that we have to understand. Our church, not just this building, but this people, we have got to be a place where people can encounter and have a life-changing relationship with Jesus. We've got to be a people where people are able to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And um, I don't want to ignore what the Holy Spirit has to do in all of it. Okay, the Holy Spirit is doing all kinds of stuff. But we cannot deny that we have a responsibility. We cannot shirk that responsibility and say God will take care of it. And sometimes he's asked us to do that work for him. Now, we, it's not just we, can, we should do it. We have to do it. We aren't given the option. We aren't, we aren't given, you know, sometimes as a parent, I find myself saying, hey, could you take the trash out? hey, could you get a trash bag for that and put it back in the trash can? You know what my kids say? No. And then I say, I'm sorry. I gave you the illusion by the way I said that that it was optional. 
What I meant was, take out the trash, and then you other kid, get a trash bag and put it in there. Okay? Sometimes we think God is giving us the option. He is not giving us the option. He's saying, you are a Christian. You have this amazing gift. I've put it in your lap. Now you have a purpose and a mission to go and share your faith with the world. So that does, this isn't a me thing as a minister. This is a we thing as Christians, something that we are called and must do. And sometimes that's going to look at us collectively being a Philip. Somebody who says, man, I got this coworker, and they said something's going on in their life, and there was a hint of faith there. I wonder if I'm just going to sit there and take this opportunity, I'm going to tell them why I believe what I believe. And you're a Philip who actually sits down with them and tries to show them the truth of Christ. Now, some of you think, that's real scary. That's not something that I feel like I want to do. Uh, that's something, not something I feel like I'm gifted to do. Um, our church recently took part in a survey called, uh, with natural church development. If you were here uh, two, three weeks ago, uh, Dr. Wayne Shaw, who like almost, he was, he's 86 years old and about preached the doors off this place. He's amazing, okay? Um, he kind of came to ex- show us kind of how this organization helps churches kind of diagnose their health and see how they're doing. And the purpose is to help us identify the place where we are the least healthy and to help us work on it. The place where our church was deemed to be least healthy was in evangelism. It was shown that we don't do much for it. It was shown that us as a congregation, we don't think about doing it ourselves. We don't look at the people in our lives and think, who can I pray for? That, and think, maybe the Holy Spirit would start working in their life so that I could play a role in there. It's just something that's not on our radar. And I'm not saying shame on you or anything. I mean, that stuff starts at the top here. And so, but I'm thinking that's something that we need to very much take seriously. And so um, if you've uh, come into church and you've seen people meeting in my office, part of the way this process of getting a survey works is you get the results back and then they tell you to put together a church health team, four, five, six people who can meet and just kind of say, okay, here's where we're least healthy. How can we be better what are we doing here? And so that's all we're doing. We're just kind of, we, we make, we're sitting here talking through this issue. How can we be better? And then we make recommendations to the elders and then they proceed as they see fit. So um, that's not some secret society, okay? That's not a meeting group for the elite of the church. That's just a few people who are volunteering to help us become a healthier congregation. And so part of it might be teaching people how to, this will make sense in a minute. Um, it's teaching us how to, um, Maybe train our congregation to share our faith individually. Part of it might be how can we have more of an outreach presence in the community. Okay, so that's part of it. Um, Another side of it means that we want this church to be a place where you can invite people. Okay, because maybe you say, I couldn't, right now I don't feel equipped to share my faith with somebody. Okay, but what about inviting someone? Say, hey, come to church with me. We can do lunch after. Okay, that's something that most people can do and most people will say yes to. And so we want to make sure that when people come to church, we want this to be an inviting, welcoming place for them. There's a lot of work that has been done here at church to help our church make more sense to people who don't go to church. We want our church to be a place where unchurched people can enjoy coming and attending. Um, a couple things just to kind of help you uh, think through. Because some of you, you wonder why we do things on Sunday morning because you don't like it. And it's not for you. That's why you don't like it. It's, it's for non-church people. Um, so... Sorry, um, but part of that, part of it starts with the website. I don't know if you know this, but almost all the people who come here for the first time have visited our website before they came in the doors. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I, I can't tell how many times I've heard people say, we listened to sermons for a month before we came. Oh, okay. That's, I need to think more about what I say up here and how it's going to show up 
when we have a sermon online. Okay, okay, that helps me. So we've kind of worked our website because we've also discovered that none of you go to our website anyway. <laughs> the only people who go there are people who might come to church. So a lot of the stuff that we put up there for you guys, we're taking it away because you don't look at it anyway. And so that's one thing we do. Our ch- the website is kind of the front door. Um, in the last couple of years, we've added um, uh, and been more intentional about our greeters, training greeters, so that everybody who comes in our door gets a, a welcome handshake and hopefully a little direction about where to go, find the bathrooms, get their kids checked in, and that kind of stuff. Um, when it comes to music, um, we don't necessarily always have a definitive style, but we make sure that whatever we do, we try to do it well so that it's, um, it's honoring to God. Um, when I get up and say a welcome, how many of you have noticed that I say the same thing over and over again every week? I, I have because you know what? None of you listen to that either. Okay? You know why? Because you know it all. Why does he say that our service is going to last an hour? Okay? It always lasts an hour. We know that. Yeah, but not somebody might not. And, and one of the number one questions people have when they come into a church building is, how long am I going to be stuck here? Especially if they got dragged by their mom for Mother's Day or something. And so every week I'm going to get up and say, we're going to be here about an hour. Why am I here? Okay, well, here, let me tell you why our church is here. I'm going to say our mission statement every week. I'm going to tell people about the Connect card on the bulletin because if somebody fills that out, we will always follow up with them. We will always let them know that we are glad that they are here. So if you bring a guest, encourage them to fill it out so that we can just say thanks for coming and let them know that they were noticed and we were glad that they came. So there's lots of things that we do to kind of help this be not just for us, but for people who are going to come here, so that you can invite someone with confidence that they are going to have a, a if maybe they don't have a meaningful encounter with Jesus in the first go-round, but at least they can say, you know what, that wasn't so bad, that wasn't what I was expecting, that was better than I'd hoped for. And so all over the place, we want to make sure that our eyes are not just on us, but on those who don't know Christ, because everybody's road looks different But in certain ways, it always looks the same. All roads lead to Jesus, and so we're going to make him the biggest and highest thing that we focus our attention on here. And so we want you to see sharing faith not as the church's mission, the church's mission, but as our mission, my mission, your mission. This is something that we cannot deny. We cannot let slip off to the, to the edges of our life, to something that we'll get to round to if we have time after all the practices and, you know, recitals that we've got to go to and all the other things. We want it to be a key pillar of what we are as a people of God. And one thing that that survey has shown is that we're not quite there yet, but we're going to be working on it. And that takes all of us working together to, take, to make this more of an important thing. So there is a world of people out there who don't know Jesus. That's not because they're horrible, awful people. It's because we, we haven't told them yet. We haven't shared it with them yet. And we've got to take that incredibly seriously. Because even though their their road to Christ might be different than ours, we still know the way. It all goes to Jesus. We know the Holy Spirit is working in the background. And we know that God's called us to maybe be one of the stepping stones on the way to Jesus. So we're going to lead them. We're going to stop acting like it's not our thing. We're going to stop acting like we don't care. And we're going to lead people in meaningful ways, hopefully, to our Savior.